Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 55 of Impact Boom. My name is Tom Allen. I'm the director of Seven Positive, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Sandy Blackburn-Wright. Experienced thought leader and social innovator, Sandy has worked across all three sectors to create positive change, both locally and internationally, over the last 35 years. She's the founder and managing director of Social Outcomes, a for-purpose business that uses social and financial innovation to create and fund quality outcomes for its partners. Sandy serves on the board of the Community Service Industry Alliance, the advisory board of QT's Australian Centre for Not-for-Profits and Philanthropic Studies, the Australian advisory board to the Social Impact Investment Global Steering Committee, and is an industry fellow at Griffith University's Centre for Sustainable Enterprises. Sandy has played a leading role in growing the impact investing, shared value and social enterprise sectors in Australia, designing numerous large social innovation projects and co-founding Impact Investing Australia. She's also been heavily involved in the growing opportunity of social impact bonds, having worked on the Benevolent Society Bond in New South Wales and most recently the Youth Connect Bond in Queensland. The team are now working on a development impact bond in PNG, along with other impact investing opportunities in the region. Sandy has the ability to build bridges between the social and the financial after 15 years in international development in Southern Africa and 10 years at senior levels in banking and professional services in Australia, with the last corporate role as Head of Social Innovation for Westpac. She's also a best-selling author and public speaker. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss Sandy's broad insights into social entrepreneurship and social investment. We'll get Sandy's thoughts and perspective on social enterprise opportunities, and we'll hear what Sandy believes can be done to create stronger opportunities for positive social change. Sandy, thanks very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So to kick things off, Sandy, could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to work in the social investment and social innovation sectors? I know one of the things you want to discuss as we go along is how I found my purpose and yeah. things like that, yeah. but I went straight from uni to South Africa. It was one of those things to my boyfriend at the time. His, uh, his dad was involved in South Africa in community development work there. He ran mm. a communications agency and so he had these... Um, connections and he was trying to get the message out of what various community organizations were doing there. Yeah. And so there was an opportunity for us all, there were six of us, to go to South Africa and be part of a youth leadership development mm. program there. So I went straight from uni. It was always something that I wanted to do from when I was tiny. Yeah. And even though that was a four or five month gig, I just never came back basically. Wow. So I stayed there for 15 years. When we got to that point when the others were heading back and they've all gone to do amazing things in you know, journalism and architecture yep. and other things, the rest of the gang, I was thinking, what would I do back in Australia that would be more impactful than this? Mm. And I couldn't think of anything. So it was really clear that this was going to be the best place to spend my time and put my efforts and so yep. on. So I did that for, as I say, 15 years. And then I came back to Australia because my dad was ill 
Mm. He wasn't going to live that long. Yep. So I wanted to be around for the last little bit. Mm. But towards the end, in post-apartheid South Africa, it was really clear as a lot of the large aid agencies and, and governments were coming in that yep. understanding capital was really important. Mm. So the opportunity to work in a bank um, was really valuable. And I was not so much thinking about a career, but a skill set. Mm. So how do I learn more about financial markets and, yep. and get more financial literature myself? And working in a bank seemed to be a good place to do it. Yeah. And when yeah. I joined Westpac, it was very people-focused. So of all the banks, it was the one that really developed its people. Yep. And the two women who interviewed me for the role were amazing women who became both of them my mentors. And so it was an easy choice for, to go with Westpac yep. and some of the things that they were doing in, um, mm-hmm. in community. But my purpose for being there was to really learn the business um, as I went along. Yep. So those two things, having done the 15 years of social stuff and then the, the decade of uh, financial and professional services, it just meant that I'm a bit of an odd nut mm. in this sector now because there's not a lot of people who have a grounding on both sides. Yes, yeah. You're seeing people who are coming from a social side, particularly in the social enterprise field, coming yep. from the social side. And then you see in impact investing, most people there are ex-bankers. Yes, yeah. But someone like me is unusual. Mm. And so I often pick fights with people really because <laughs> in terms of the social entrepreneurs, they tell them to get more business-like. And yep. then with the bankers, I'm saying, you know, you've got to learn the social stuff. It's more complex than you imagine. You can't just drive deal flow. It's not mm. that simple. Yeah. It's yep. not about the deals. It's about the impact. Mm. So I'm at that sort of grinding place between um, the two, I yep. suppose. So sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes I think I make other people uncomfortable. But I'm trying to get the best impact. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so it was no, I found my purpose or I found my calling. I've just always thought that you have to contribute. Mm. So why else are we alive than to contribute? Yeah. That's it. There's no, I don't think there's a purpose. Mm. I don't think this particularly is my purpose. Yeah. It's just about feeling like I'm doing something worthwhile. Yeah. In any field, in any way, for everyone, I think that's everyone's purpose yeah fantastic so how does that align with the work you're doing at social outcomes then so what was interesting about leaving westpac four or five years ago was that when i was head of social innovation i was pulling together projects which you got a foot in the door because you were westpac to Mm. go and talk to people and particularly large corporates about opportunities to collaborate but you had to drag those corporates along with you and corporates are heavy if you're an innovator and so I was what's referred to as intrapreneur, mm. but it's as challenging as an entrepreneur, but you've just got a different set of stakeholders. So on one hand, stepping away from Westpac meant that I wasn't dragging a, a corporate yep. along with me. So, I, you know, we've been able to be much more agile mm. in social outcomes, Absolutely. but we still have the relationships with the individuals inside corporates. Mm. And I think people think of corporates as these hard, cold business-driven places where there's no one with a beating heart. And it's just not true. So corporates are full of people who really want to do meaningful things but struggle to find the bandwidth to do it. Mm. Um, They don't know where to start. They don't know how to make it work. They've usually got to do it on top of their day job, so how do they Mm. fit it in? And what I found when I was inside Westpac but also since I've left is if you come with something specific that plays to people's strengths and say, could you do this specific thing, then they'll jump on it. Yeah, and there's right. so much goodwill inside corporate Australia. It's it's amazing. And so being at Social Outcomes allows me to pull on those relationships mm. and say, would you like to do this, that or the other? And if they can, they will. Yeah. But also innovating and finding other partners that it would have been difficult to say get sign off on or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So it's very similar work. It's just quicker mm. outside corporate. 
Well, it certainly sounds like you're tapping into some of that goodwill there. Yeah. So what have you found to be the biggest challenges in setting up these social impact bonds and how do you typically work around these challenges and with these people? Social impact bonds are so interesting because it shifts the way the relationships happen Mm. between the three sectors. And when you shift the way people are used to working together, it's really uncomfortable. And when you first do it, you're really bad at it. I know. (laughs) So we're suddenly asking everyone to think about outcomes. So the government's not good at it. The social sector's not good at it. Business isn't great thinking about it. All of those things. So everyone struggles to wrap their heads around a different way of working. Mm. So focusing on outcomes and not inputs. But at the same time, it kind of shifts a gear on the way we're talking with each other because the contracting is different. Mm. But sometimes we can fall back into the old ways of behaving. And so it's, it's again, it's, it's a grinding space. It's really difficult. And it takes time to negotiate it. And, yeah, people don't love change. They don't like doing their work differently. They're Mm. used to doing it in a certain way. And these bonds require you to think differently, to behave differently, to partner differently, to contract differently. It's difficult. Mm. But everyone has a common intent around wanting to get good outcomes despite all of the challenges. And so people plough ahead. Mm. But we've just finished the Youth Connect bond now. And everyone right across the board has uh, what we're all calling deal fatigue. So we kind of need Christmas off away from each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then we'll come back and love each other again. But, you know, it's it's demanding on relationships as well, this uh, this shifting mm. that's happening. So it's it's complex as an instrument, but it's also complex in terms of managing those relationships. Yeah, I bet it is. Mm. You're telling me before the podcast about this social impact bond you're setting up in PNG at the yeah, moment. Yeah, Can you share a little bit more about this and, and how you were driving the, the process? Well, there's this really cool facility that DFAT has set up about a year ago called Pacific Rise. Mm. They've just quietly gone on and said, we've been working for years in the Pacific. We've been funding normal development projects. And it's going okay, but it's not great. We've been funding business activity. It's going okay, but it's not great. Mm. What if we brought those two things together and said, how do you leverage social enterprise opportunities? How do you draw in not mainstream investors? Yeah but impact investors, although impact investment's becoming more mainstream, mm. but investors who value impact creation, not just financial returns. Yep. And it, it feels like a better fit for the Pacific. And so far in the first year of the life of this facility, I think it's proving to be the case. Mm. So DFAT's been amazing. So really brave in saying, let's try something different. So what they do is they fund organizations like ours yep. to go and find the opportunities. So you go and do this scoping exercise and you yep. look for possible impact investment mm. that is creating real social value as yep. well. And then you do some investment readiness work and then you um, hopefully secure investments for those enterprises. Mm. So we've been working with the wonderful PNG Cocoa Board all year. And uh, one of the things that became obvious was that roads is an issue for their success. And even though they've built in a workaround, improving the roads would actually be really important, but it's outside what they can manage. Mm. But we thought maybe we should look at a development impact bond as a way to do something different with roads. So we know how to fund roads. We've been funding roads for decades and decades, but we build roads in a very linear fashion. So we think, okay, a road, we really add value. Let's build a highway, and then it's all about the engineering and so on. So we put in the social impacts that we think will be created as part of the business case, and it's definitely the reason you do it. But the design is all about the engineering. Mm. And so what if with, a, with an impact bond, you think first and foremost about the outcomes and you have to design for those. So it flips the design process upside down and you're completely focused on the outcomes and that will tell you 
therefore what you need to do. Mm. So you go and have a look at the evidence base and what do we know about this? So when you do that with roads, it, maybe it's been done before, but we haven't seen it in the research. Yep. Well, you flip it and say, what do small-scale farmers, and particularly women who are small-scale farmers, need out of roads in order to be successful and have access to services and so on? Often we build highways and we think that the benefits will trickle down, yep. a little bit like trickle-down economics. Yeah, yeah. But it's not always the case. And so if we start with the outcome we want in mind and work backwards, do you actually get a different road design? Mm -hmm. And the answer we're finding is, yeah, you do. Significantly different mm -hmm. in different places with different maintenance approaches, with different purposes. Yeah, yeah. And so we're in the early days of designing this bond with DFAT and a range of other players. Mm -hmm. So we're hoping to have that finished by April next year in 2018. But so far, it's been absolutely fascinating. And we've been talking to, you know, IFC, World Bank, ADB, as yeah. well as DFAT, and everyone's going, I never thought about it like that. Mm. What does a woman-friendly road look like? Yeah, yeah. It's really different because women use roads differently. Children yeah. use roads differently. Mm. Um, and so we should design for that. It would be really, really interesting to, to see the outcomes yeah. once that's in place. So yeah. I'll look forward to following up on that. That's great. So when it comes to getting finance as a social entrepreneur, yeah. what would the top three recommendations be from you about helping you know, these organisations get on their way and, and successfully move forward with their social enterprise? So firstly, when I first started working in social enterprise, it was when no one knew what it was. So I was still at Westpac. The Westpac Foundation has funded social enterprise development for decades now. And we had to explain as the you know opening line of every conversation what on earth a social enterprise mm. was. Now, I think some people think that social enterprise is a new word for a charity. And so often I look at it and go, where's your business model? And they go, what do you mean? Yeah. So it's for me, it's all about the business model. Mm. So if your social, the social value you want to create has no underlying business model that can pay for itself, it's not an enterprise. Yep. And so it will never work. Yep. And I think as those of us who've been supporting the development of this sector for a long time would agree, we spend a lot of time just getting to that point. Mm. And people come and they want help and support and mentoring and coaching and da da, -da. Yep which you, you, know, you happily do, but there isn't a business model. And you can give that feedback and people struggle with it. Yep. Um, and it's not that the social idea of what you want to do is wrong. It's just this is not the vehicle for it. Mm. So rethink the business model. So getting the business model right, yep. I think, is the key. Yep. And once you've got that business model, start selling. Mm. Because people often say, well, I've got to get grant funding or I've got to get investment or I've got to get all these things. The best way to get investment in your business is to sell stuff. And the ideally best way to do it is get a contract before you even start, mm, yeah. um, which is what the likes of Luke has done at Vanguard Laundries. And it's been tough, mm. but their, their sort of skyrocketing success with yeah. Vanguard Laundries is because they did the hard yards around getting a, a reasonable size contract first. Absolutely. So if you can do it that way, that's the best way. And if not, just start selling. Because mm. really we're a, you know, we're a social enterprise yeah. in terms of social outcomes. Just start selling. Get people to pay you for what it is that you're doing. Yep. So whether you're selling coffee, which is my least favourite social enterprise, by the way, or whether you're doing you know, anything, yep. customers are your investors. Mm. And so we get too caught up about finding funding and investors and so yep. on, but if we focused more on actually growing the business and, and just selling things to customers, yep. I think we would need less funding, mm. actually. Definitely. But if we do need it, and it's not just about selling a service that's fairly low entry, and if you do need a capital injection, yep. then I think it's important to be to have the business model in place, to have thought it through well, 
but also to be able to communicate it. Mm, definitely. So for a lot of people, they might have something that's great, but they can't talk to people about it. Sometimes the business case is an idea, but they haven't done any financial projections mm. around it. They don't really understand the market well enough. Yep. And particularly, they don't understand their competitors. Yep. I don't like social enterprises that might create themselves to fill a tiny wee niche. And then you're just saying, why are you bothering? It's yeah. a lot of effort yeah. for a tiny, tiny niche. Yeah. But something that's yeah. going to make enough of a contribution to make it worth the effort, then you've got to be thinking about how you're communicating the viability of that business mm. as well as the impact in a really succinct, compelling way to yes. potential investors. But every investor will tell you the thing that they look at more than anything else is the person and how capable is that management team. So it's preferable not to have a single entrepreneur. It's preferable to have a team of people, yeah. but that's what they'll look at more than anything. Mm. So yes, they'll look at the financials and the business model and market analysis, but if they don't like you and, and the team, They'll walk away even if it's mm. a good idea because they don't feel they can work with you. Absolutely. So being really honest, open, um, working hard, being articulate about what it is you're doing, communicating, all of those things, and building those relationships is incredibly important. Mm. It's a really interesting point. I hear that time and time again about the importance of having a really quality team yeah. and and the personalities behind those. Yeah. So it's great that you... Yeah, bring that up again. It's fantastic. I was at the Impact Summit last week, the sort of the annual conference for the sector. How did it go? It was great. I mean, I just went because, okay, obviously not the content, but I went to see everyone. Yeah. And it's great to have everyone in the sector there, as well as some uh, international players that you might have heard about that I haven't met before. Mm. And there was a couple of sessions I went to where they were asking investors, particularly who are investing in the region and sitting on large funds, you know, $100, $200 million funds. And they were also saying, it's about the people. Mm. It's all about the people. That really strong management team is what we look for more than anything else. So you just hear it all the time. Very, very interesting. So you mentioned Luke from Vanguard Laundry before. Yeah. Outside of Australia, are there any countries that you think are really leading the charge when it comes to social enterprise or social innovation in, in general? There's some interesting things happening in social innovation around Europe. And I think it's a needs must thing mm. where they're really in the crapper, basically, is economies. And so they're having to think outside the box. I think in some ways, globally, the GFC has had a similar effect. It's really pushed us to think differently about how we spend money. Yeah. But I think in terms of social innovation, you're seeing interesting things out of Portugal and mm -hmm. some other European countries. In terms of a great country on social enterprise, Scotland's probably my favourite. They're amazing. Mm -hmm. And the way that they've... I mean, they've restructured government. They've given all the government ministers exactly the same KPIs. Mm -hmm which is astonishing. So that's going to encourage collaboration sort of competition, yeah. which you do see between government silos. Yeah. And then they've created an infrastructure for the development of social enterprise. It's not perfect, but it's really intentional. Mm. And they've understood that social enterprise is probably the best way to grow the economy and help people at the same time. Yeah. So they've gone gangbusters for it. And you just don't see anything else as brave, I think, yeah, yeah. as the very comprehensive approach that Scotland's taken. Mm. So... Uh, England has also done a great deal, but I think Scotland has taken it that much further. It certainly seems like it with the Social Enterprise World Forum next year in Edinburgh I'm as well. I'm very tempted for that. It's on my look and see list. Yes, yes, yeah. us too. Us yeah. too. It'll be fantastic to see how that unfolds yeah. and just bring those amazing people together. Yeah. And we've had um, the minister who is responsible for social enterprise, Yvonne Strachan, come out a couple of years ago. So when I was still at Westpac, actually, I think Westpac brought her, someone brought her out, but Westpac had an event with her. Mm. And she was just phenomenal. Hmm. 
And so I'm really interested to see if I can swing it to go there next year, how far they've come since, you know, in the last four or five years. Yeah, they were pretty amazing then. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're only going to keep yeah. moving forward at a fast rate, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of collaboration with local government and council, mm. how might communities most effectively be engaged by councils, for example, in order to, to best co-design effective solutions that are responding to really complex problems? We're starting to do some work with local councils now. We haven't to up until this point, so it's really interesting that that's changing. Mm. And it's about design. It's a bit like what we talked about for PNG, and it's thinking about what do you want to achieve? So we're having those conversations with both councillors and the executive teams yep. and councils and saying, what does your community actually need? One of the councillors we're working with is in a quite uh, well-off area, but that doesn't mean there aren't social issues there. Mm. Yeah. And so what, does, what do the communities need? And what they often ask when they do consultation is they'll talk about master planning and they'll say, what do you need in a retail centre? Or how much car parking do you need? Or, mm. you know, those kind of things. That's probably, I mean, it's a question to ask, but it's not the question to ask. And so I think the question to ask is what worries you about the future of your family? What issues are you struggling with as a family now? Mm. Um, What concerns you, you know, you and your neighbours, what are you talking about? And get to the social issue that you want and actually leave the solution to the side. Yeah. But really identifying the social issue. Mm. And I think for my money, I think there's two things that we should be worried about in Australia. So one is trauma. Mm. And the effects of trauma are far-reaching and we're seeing them into, you know, family breakdown. We're seeing them into drug and alcohol issues right through to out-of-home care. Mm. comes from a place of trauma, not intent, but it also creates trauma, not intentionally. And so we've got multiple generations Mm. of young people, you know, coming through and then being parents and so on who've basically been traumatised. And I think we often think about these kids who are in foster care, say, and particularly when they come out as troublesome, bad kids, things like that. The kids who've been traumatised, that's it. And I think if we looked at it like that and understood its it's physical, emotional and trauma of the brain even. And so if they had a broken leg, we'd respond. But because they have an injury to their development because of the trauma and the effects on the brain, we don't see it in the same way and we don't treat Mm -hmm. it in the same way. And addiction to anything comes from a place of trauma. Mm. And if we saw it like that rather than a character failing again we might treat it differently so how are we thinking about the effects of trauma how we can support people to recover from those effects rather than judging the behaviors that we're seeing which are only a reflection of the trauma so that's the one side and we often focus a lot on that but the other one and very related to trauma is social isolation Mm. and so people are isolated so for one of the councils i did a piece of research around the um, mental and physical health implications of social isolation. It's terrifying. Mm. So it, it doubles your chance of dying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it increases your chance of dementia uh, mm. right through to Alzheimer's and schizophrenia by 64%. Yeah, it's huge. It's amazing. Dramatically increases your likelihood of cardiovascular disease. You're, you, even, you get cancer more often, but you, you heal more slowly. Mm. You have greater inflammation, all these things. And these yeah. are medical journals. These weren't like pop culture stuff I was reading. I was going straight to the source around medical journals and reading Mm. what the research was saying. Um, So it's incredible. So in, you know, in well-heeled suburbs, we're seeing huge implications in mental and physical health, which will lead to trauma and addiction and those kind of things, family breakdown and so on. But we need to solve for that. So the question councils need to be asking is helping people to express 
you know, what's going on in their lives. And in Australia, I think we have a culture of we don't talk about difficult things. Mm. We talk about problems, yep. but we don't talk about pain. Mm. And so if I'm lonely, I'll try and keep it to myself. Mm. If I'm sick, I'll try and keep it to myself because it's, it's a bit of a failure. Yep. Whereas all my years in Africa, people just had a really healthy attitude to pain. And they said, today it's you, tomorrow it's me. There's no shame in it and what we can do is support each other. Yep. And they just used to muck in. And so people would talk about it more and I think it had less there for mm. shame. But for councils, how do you have conversations with people about what's really hurting them? Yep. And how can a council play a role in that? And I think actually local government is better placed than any other part of government to address social isolation, mm. which I think is just across the board. It's a pandemic yep. in my opinion. So I think council's absolutely key. So I'm a bit of a crusade's too strong. But I think a growing focus of working with councils to see what we can do at that level, at more preventative, because councils create the landscape on which connection is built. Mm, Definitely. And if they know and can design for that intentionally, a bit like our family-friendly roads thing, if they can design for that intentionally, they can increase community connection and connection Mm. between families and individuals and so on. And people will feel more supported and we're not going to need as many government programs if we've got each other's backs. Yep. I think that's all in council's remit. Mm. So I think councils are incredibly important for the future of the country. Yeah, most certainly. So I'm working across all these three sectors yourself. I mean, you've, you've worked with small to very large organisations. Yeah. When it comes to collaboration, and we're talking about collaboration with councils now, yeah. what do you think are the fundamental ingredients to create a, a, a culture that really allows for the best collaboration to happen? I think there's two things. One, obviously, is trust. And any collaboration will be really difficult. And the only thing that gets you through is trust. Yeah. And I think it's trust person to person. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did a big social innovation project at the RNA here in Brisbane. Yeah. And that took two, two and a half years to yeah. get up. And the individuals involved, so the key people in each of the partners and their ability to stay connected because we trusted each other. There were mm-hmm. three of us is the only reason that project got up, the only reason. Yeah, wow. And so the relationships between the three of us were strong and are still strong mm. enough to, to create the tenacity you need to get through these collaborations. Yeah. So I think investing in building those strong relationships before you start, mm. and it can be just one person in each organisation. Yep. So let's say they're three or four, actually spending some time together, getting yep. to know each other and building trust and really being vulnerable and putting yourself mm. out there to do that yep. I think is incredibly important. Yep. And the other thing at an organisational level is failure. So most organisations uh, hate failure and they punish failure. Mm. And of course there's no innovation and collaboration yep. Yep. as a result. And then they say, oh, we need a more innovative culture, but you have to stop punishing people for yep. failing because you absolutely will. So you're going to fail, it's going to take longer, there will be setbacks, so how do you create an organisational space that allows for the time it takes to do that and for the ups and downs and the highs and lows and the failures, that will absolutely happen, mm. guaranteed. Yeah. So if you want these cut-through ways of working, you've got to create, you know, the senior leadership has to create the space for the people who are working on these projects, yeah. protect them from the normal consequences of failure. Mm. Otherwise it won't happen. People won't take the risks. And inside government particularly, People are really punished yep. for failure very yeah. strongly. Yep. And not surprisingly, the further you go along in government, the less likely you are to take risks yep. to try new things and so on because you've been punished for years yep. 
And so your tolerance is really low to lift your head and try something. Mm. So whilst it's frustrating to come across that, I, I have a lot of empathy for the people in those roles who have been punished on a regular basis yeah. for just trying to do something that works. Yeah, most certainly. So I think that senior leaders in government and corporate and not-for-profits, if they can create space that allows people to fail and manage the risks of that, and particularly in government you're talking political risk, yeah. um, but provide some cover for that, Mm. Otherwise, we're just always going to continue doing what we're doing. And yeah. clearly, it's not working because we're heading towards a massive blowout yeah. on every level. So what we've been doing is not working. Mm. So we've got to be brave enough to protect people and allow them to fail. Yeah. So which organisations then do you think are allowing their people to, to fail and to come up with some really innovative solutions that are, are then responding to these complex community issues? Very few at this stage. And what I'm seeing, and I did it myself so I know how it goes, is the individuals are taking the risk on themselves and they're just doing it anyway mm. and they'll live with the consequences yeah. um, because they feel strongly enough about what's happening. So they're not getting that organisational support, you know, for the most part. It's not happening. Is it about asking for permission or forgiveness? Or? Always forgiveness. Mm. When we did the first impact bond, yeah. the Benevolent Society one and those first two that New South Wales did, we asked for forgiveness. Unfortunately, it worked, so we didn't have to be forgiven. But we didn't go right the way up the chain mm. to ask for permission because it would have got bogged down. It was still just an idea at that stage, and so we all took it on ourselves to just put an application in for that first, you know, expression of interest for yeah. the first bond and give it a crack. Mm. And so I think that's that's how we're seeing currently things happen. But what that means is it's small pockets of innovation with individuals who are brave enough or whatever it might take yeah. to just try it and see and see what happens. Mm. And sometimes that has terrible consequences and you lose jobs and all that kind of stuff. But that's, you know, the people who do this kind of work brave. Yeah. And so that's what it's taking. But if we're going to get it at scale, we have to have the leadership of these organisations providing cover yeah, and being absolutely. aware of the implications because people from the leadership positions will say we want an innovation culture but they don't fully understand the, the cultural implications of what that means for the organisation mm. of failure and trial and error. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're, we're getting to a point where we've not got much choice. I think there's a couple of really, really good points there. So to finish off then, yeah. which books would you recommend to our listeners I would say when you're not working, get a life and do not read a workbook because this work is hard and you've got to stay on top of your own uh, energy and focus and things like that. So I don't read outside of work at all. Like I'll read all this research yep. and that kind of stuff at work. But if I'm... Leave it behind. Leave it behind. If yep. I'm at bed at night and every night I'll read a chapter of something. Yep. But for me, it's got to be something that's going to refresh me. Mm. So I quite like historical novels okay. because I like a well-written book, but yep. I also like to learn something about history while mm. I'm at it just because yep. it's interesting. So that's kind of where I often go. But I think it's really important we take better care of ourselves. People who do this work are notoriously bad for boundaries. Mm. So I think put down the workbooks and particularly a lot of my friends when they go away and leave over the summer holidays, they'll take a big fat pile of books they want to read. They'll work things. Oh, my God, mm. stop it. You know, we need to down tools yep. and refresh. And whether that's a weekend or whether it's the summer holidays, we've got to get serious about taking better care of ourselves. I think that's a great point of reflection, especially coming up for the Christmas holidays. I am not going to read a book. <laughs> I'm stocking up on jigsaw puzzles and things like that. Fantastic. But I'm not, I'm not going to read any work stuff. Great. Holidays. 
Well, I'll look forward to seeing that 5,000-piece puzzle complete. Oh, so <laughs> I've got a few from last year. <laughs> Sandy, thank you so much for sharing your really valuable insights and time today and to your two beautiful dogs as well. The snoring dogs. Snoring with us. Um, we really appreciate it. We'll look forward to following your projects into the future. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.